Uh, grab your Bibles, turn to Genesis 46. We'll pick up where we left off, and we'll try to make it to the end of chapter uh, 47. Now, our, our loose outline, um, I say loose because I'm still in this from Bodie Bauckham, and then we're sort of just doing our own thing, um, is uh, here. Um, the story, this part of the story, Joseph, is really about reconciliation. And uh, we're in the part where uh, they are going through the process of revelation and reunion. So we saw them, um, Joseph, reveal himself to his brothers and then send send them to go get Jacob to bring him back. So we still have that revelation part. Jacob's going to meet Joseph for the first time in decades. Um, uh, But but this is a a section about reunion uh, all all at the same time, which is ironic. That's what we were just talking about in our praise that, um, you know, been 15, 20 years and you just pick up right where you left off with... uh, high school peers or whatever it may be. So let's start here in chapter 46, verse 28. 46, 28. He had sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him in Goshen, and they came into the land of Goshen. Then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father in Goshen. He presented himself to him, fell on his neck, wept on, on his neck a good while. Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die, since I have seen your face and know you are still alive. Joseph said to his brothers, to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and will say to him, My brothers and my father's household who were in the land of Canaan have come to me. The men are shepherds, for they have been keepers of livestock, and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. When Pharaoh calls you and says, What is your occupation? You shall say, Your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth, even until now, both we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. Now, I mentioned this, that the story slows down to the point that we have details we don't need. We don't need this exchange about uh, the brothers have to go present themselves before Pharaoh again. You could really skip this, because we already have a scene where Joseph presents the issue to Pharaoh. Pharaoh says, Go get your dad, bring everyone up, we'll take care of everything. Here's a few U-Hauls. We had that last week. So you see that the story slows down, which was an ancient Near Eastern way of, 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 of bringing the climax to a greater climax. To us, it ruins the climax, right? We like a well-paced story. You know, we, we don't like it when it slows down unnecessarily. The ancient world did like that. Um, I've always given this example. Read um, The Odyssey. Oh, man, it's, it's, you take the book, cut it in half. The first half is fun. The second half, nothing happens. Like in the first half, he, you know, Odysseus is trying to get back to the island. Uh, just pretend like you've read it before. And, and he's trying to get back to the island. Well, at the halfway point, he's at the island. All he has to do is show up and say, leave my wife alone. The king's back in town. Does he do that? No. No, he just hangs out on the island forever. And he does all this deceptive sort of stuff. It's really annoying to the modern reader. The ancient reader, it builds tension. Just do something already, right? Well, um, you get that in in the Bible uh, here as well. Well, the Hebrews have entered Egypt, and Judah is is sent ahead of them by Jacob, which is a reminder that that Judah is taking the the leadership of the family. He's not the firstborn. It's not Simeon and Reuben, who we would expect to do this. It's Judah. And we've seen as a subplot the role of Judah go from scoundrel to leader. And this, of course, is going to lead to the blessings of Judah from his father and then ultimately to David, Solomon, and the house uh, of, of David. Um, and I, I love this. So, so Judah shows up and says, hey, they're coming. Get ready. 
And it says that Joseph prepared his chariot. Uh, I don't know, maybe your Bible says harnessed his chariot, something like that. Um, there's actually quite a bit here. One, this is not something you would expect Joseph to do. Think about it. How weird would it be if, let's say, the governor pulled up in our church parking lot driving? That'd be odd, wouldn't it? In fact, this past Saturday, I was at a campaign event in Mount Sterling, and there was uh, local, state, and, and national leaders there. And uh, I left at the same time as one of the national politicians. And without realizing, I pulled up at a stoplight, and to my left was that political uh, elected leader, okay? And that elected leader, of course, was not driving. Well, that makes sense. He's busy doing whatever it is that he does, right? We, we've come to expect that, that of our elected leaders, they have drivers. Um, and uh, there's, there's been jokes about presidents absolutely hating that, you know, that they go to their ranch. You know, I think W complained about this. He go to his ranch in Texas and they won't want him to drive. He's like, I'm president of the United States. I, I, I can bend over this, but I'm driving my own truck to go get, you know, the hay in, in the barn, something like that. Um, well, so here's Joseph doing something that he would not normally do, but the reason he's doing it is because he's in a hurry. He gets wind that his family has come, particularly his dad is about to arrive. And instead of waiting for, for them to come to him, he, almost like the prodigal father, goes to them. Right? He is in such a hurry. And, and you, you think that this is the way to arrive, isn't it? If you're Joseph... Arriving in a chariot is a very powerful Egyptian thing to do. And so, and you remember that the brothers told Jacob, yeah, he's like the second most powerful man in Egypt. And he's like, you're just making that up. You're exaggerating a bit, okay? He's a dreamer, you know, we remember that, right? Now you're dreaming. And here he comes showing up in his chariot. And Jacob realizes everything for the first time in their lives, everything they told me was true. So I, I just love that. He, he fell on, on Jacob's neck. This is the same language we saw Joseph do to Benjamin. It's just a, a, a term uh, or phrase referencing very affectionate. He stays there a good while. I think we can understand that, can't we? Um, Jacob thought Joseph was dead, and Joseph thought he'd never see his father's face again. Uh, really an amazing story. Um, and so Jacob speaks there in verse 30 to his son for the first time in decades. I mean, it, it's really climactic in, in many ways. Um, but the story, that, that little reunion is ruined by a list of instructions Joseph gives the family. And even though Pharaoh's already sort of promised them good land, it's not official yet. They have to present themselves before Pharaoh. And so Joseph is going to train them, right? I don't know if you watch a lot of lawyer shows or lawyer documentaries and stuff. A good lawyer will, I mean, I say good lawyer, an expensive lawyer will take their client, right? If, if they insist on going on the stand and they will teach their client how to be on the stand. If you ever watch like athletics, um, one of the things you, you get when you, you reach, you know, say division one basketball, football, or professionals is that the school or the club or the team will have people to train the players and the coaching staff how to answer questions. So I've, I've grown up around sports, and one of the things that you can guarantee, pre-game, halftime, and post-game interviews, nothing is ever said. Nothing. Think about it. So, so coach, you've got a really tough team coming up. Um, what's, 
what's your strategy? Well, you know, we, we respect this team and we know they have a good record, but I really believe in, in, in our guys and, and we've worked really hard this week. Nothing, right? We already knew that. <laughs> you want to keep your job, right? Post game. Coach, that, that was a tough game. You know, you, you, you weren't able to win it in the end. What are your thoughts on it? Which is not a question. It's a statement. What are your, it's not a real question. Anyway, he would say something like, uh, well, you know, I'm really proud of our guys and give credit to the other team. They came here, they fought and, uh, uh, you know, just not everything went our way. You know, sometimes we, you, you, you take your shots and they don't always go in and we'll, we'll get them better next time and we'll go back to the drawing board and get ready for our next game. Right? You've heard that answer a thousand times. You're not saying anything. Right? That's the point. That's the point. You answer the question without really saying anything. And so that's what Joseph is doing. He's saying, look, you're going to be asked these questions. You're going to give these answers. Um, what is significant, because we'll, we'll come back to, uh, to, to some of this, uh, is verse 34. Um, you shall say, your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth even until now both we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen. You'll notice that this scene, Joseph is insisting Goshen is where they need to be. There's some theories for that. One is it's prominent land. So uh, particularly for herders of sheep. So he's saying, if you're going to bring your sheep, like this is where you need to be. Okay? So if you want to raise horses in the United States of America, I don't recommend New Mexico. Right? I'm guessing, right? You, you're going to recommend Kentucky, Right? If, if you're going to raise tobacco, I don't recommend North Dakota. Right? Um, you know, that's, if you want to strike it rich in the oil business, go to Texas. Right? And that, that's, so, so maybe it's something like that. One theory is Joseph wants to keep the Israelites as close to the eastern border as he can. And that becomes strategic in the story of Moses. Because they're right there. And, and there's a road there that gets them right, 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 right out. So... I don't know, but he's, he's really insistent on it. But verse 34, um, uh, so your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth, even until now, both we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen. For every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. Strange, isn't it? You can see that Joseph is, is risking, in many ways, the well-being of his own family. They are coming in as exiles, which is not surprising. That's how Joseph got in Egypt. Remember that the story of Joseph is one of exile and exaltation. And now what we're seeing is that the way of Joseph is the way of the people of Israel. Now they are going to go into a type of exile that will lead hundreds of years later to their exaltation. So as Joseph had to go down into Egypt, so now Israel will. Now we do know that there was um, hostility between Canaanites or Asiatics is the word the Egyptians used and the Egyptians. We've already seen this. A lot of racial overtones in the story, um, and uh, we, we've looked at that, and you can go back and read the story. Um, but Egyptians are cattle herders. Uh, you remember that Pharaoh had dreams of uh, fat cows and skinny cows? They're, they're cattle herders, and as such, they, they, when the Asiatics arrived, um, the sheep would mess with the waterways of the Egyptians in ways they didn't like. And so there's conflict there uh, between, between these farmers. And remember that in the Egyptian history, there's a group that are called the Hyksos. The Hyksos are Asiatic sheep herders who nearly conquered all of Egypt. Now, 
I'm thinking about showing a, docu- a part of a documentary next week. If you think it's a terrible idea, let me know. It's just about Joseph, so 20 minutes, something like that. And it's about the archaeological, historical likelihood that something like this did happen. Uh, we've actually already watched it, but it was years ago, and I no doubt you've already forgot about it. Um, like, we may have actually found a statue of Joseph um, in a pyramid with, um, with Asiatic housing with 12 pillars. It's pretty cool. Um, coat of many colors, clearly Asiatic with his mushroom haircut. It's pretty cool. Anyways, um, what was I talking about? I got distracted by something cool. So uh, one of the problems with the story of Joseph and Moses is when do we date these things? So some will say that the story of Joseph takes place during the Hyksos when they took over. Some say it's before, some say it's after. Regardless, we know that there is animosity between an Asiatic group called the Hyksos and the Egyptians. They're, they're, they're going at it. And eventually the Hyksos takes over a good chunk of Egypt until the Egyptians can push them all the way out. So it does make sense that in general, the Egyptians don't like these people. So you have a group of Canaanites, Asiatics, Semites, coming into Egypt, and they're immigrants, sojourners, exiles. And there's already racial uh, uh, discrimination involved. Remember, Joseph is not allowed to eat with his brothers because Egyptians don't eat with them. It's shameful. It's an abomination. And now Joseph is saying, look, your very presence is complicated. You're not wanted here in general. So we've got to make sure we do everything right before Pharaoh. And he helps them rehearse through that. And so starting in chapter 47, verse 1, they go before Pharaoh. And um, you'll notice in verse 1, we, we don't have time to read, read every bit of it. In verse 1, uh, Joseph goes ahead and has them settle in Goshen. I think what he's doing here is he doesn't have the permission yet. I think it's the ask for forgiveness rather than permission thing. Right? You, you grew up with that saying, right? It's better to ask for forgiveness than permission. So go ahead and do it and then apologize. I think that's what he's doing because I want you here. So what we're going to do is go ahead and put your stuff down, put the stakes in the ground for your tents, and then we're going to go say, hey, you know, we're getting along with the neighbors really well. And I sure would, you know, hate to mess all that up, you know. Um, our neighbors have voted in favor of it. So you just, you know, sorry, I know that things are out of order, but it would just be really convenient if we could just stay there. I think that's what Joseph is doing. I, I could be wrong. In verse two, we discover that Joseph doesn't take his whole family. He only takes five of his brothers. We're not told who they are, um, but he only takes five. And, but the language is he takes his five best brothers. That is the sort of thing brothers would do, right? Um, but nevertheless, um, he, he brings them before him. In verses three to five is, is the meat of this. Pharaoh said to his brothers, what is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, your servants are shepherds as our fathers were. Again, this is taken right from the, what we just read in chapter 46. They said to Pharaoh, we have come to sojourn in the land for there is no pasture for your servants' flocks for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. And now please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Note the word that is used there. It's sojourn. They are sojourners. This is language indicating to Pharaoh their intention is not to stay. They are to stay through the famine, which Joseph says will end on a certain year, seven years of famine. So they've come to just make it through the famine, and then they're going to go back home. Uh, Now, this is a fulfillment of what God told Abraham. Go all the way back to Genesis 15. The Lord said to Abraham, know for certain that your offspring 
will be sojourners in the land that is not theirs and will be servants there. They will be afflicted for 400 years. That begins here. They identify themselves as sojourners. And so what was temporary seemed to become permanent, not by their choice, but by the choice of Pharaoh by enslaving them. A Pharaoh that didn't know a Joseph arose and enslaved them. So that sojourning, uh, temporary time became permanent slavery. Um, and so verse 6, Pharaoh gives Goshen to the Hebrews. Uh, now we know where Goshen is, uh, the ancient city of Avaris. We'll see here in a minute. It's called Ramesses later on. And in verse 7 to 10, Pharaoh gets to meet Jacob. And can you imagine being Jacob? I mean, you, you thought your son was dead. And then all of a sudden you discover he's alive, he's powerful, and he's going to introduce you to the most powerful man in the world. You know, to Joseph, Pharaoh has just, he's gotten used to being around Pharaoh. But to Jacob, you know, and by the way, this is the second time the one of the patriarchs has met Pharaoh. Abraham met Pharaoh. Um, and now Jacob gets to meet him. Uh, I want to pick up there in verse 7. Joseph brought in Jacob his father and stood him before Pharaoh, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. We'll come back to that. Pharaoh said to Jacob, how many are the days of the years of your life? It's weird, right? It's, it's close to the Hebrew. It's like, how old are you? I bet if you have NIV or the message or something like that, it just comes out and says, how old are you? Right? Now, Jacob's a man, so Pharaoh doesn't mind asking that question, right, ladies? Right? You don't ask a woman that question. How many years, right? How many revolutions around the sun are you? You, know, you don't ask women that question, do you? Um, but Pharaoh can ask Jacob that. And he says there, uh, the days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my father and the days of their sojourning. That's interesting language, isn't it? I've always been a sojourner. Okay, this is a prominent theme in Genesis, but in the Bible. We now are sojourners in a land among exiles. This world isn't our home. Now, we have an obligation here. It's the city of God, city of man thing that Augustine would have used. And he's saying, my whole life I've been a sojourner. I don't have a home. The promise of Genesis is that Abraham's descendants will have a home and Jacob will die without it. He will die in Egypt and, and they'll say, he'll say, go bury my heart, you know, in, in, in Canaan, bury me in Canaan. Uh, but he says, I've been a sojourner 130 years most people can't wait 30 minutes for God to answer their prayer. He'll spend his whole life never seeing God's answer to that prayer. And they were the answer to the promise. In fact, hundreds more years will go. Many more generations will remain sojourners in Egypt before Moses comes and says, let my people go. Moses himself will die, 120 years old, sees the promise, but doesn't experience it. It isn't until Jacob Remember that, that with faith, faith requires patience. You, you can't take patience out of faith. Um, so, by the way, in case you're wondering, Abraham lives till he's 175 years. Jacob, or Isaac rather, lives to be 180. Jacob will not make it that long. I think he dies at 140 or something like that. Um, but here he says, I haven't lived as long as, as they did, and he won't. Um, I want to highlight the inclusio, verse 7, Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Verse 10, Jacob blessed Pharaoh. It's a common Hebrew literary trope. 
So everything in between that inclusio is, is one little unit. And the point is, is that Jacob is blessing the nations. As the nations are blessing Israel, Israel is blessing the nations. That's, go back to Genesis 12. Those who bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. Egypt here is a blessing. In Exodus, Egypt becomes a curse. So Egypt will be blessed by God. Later, they will be cursed by God. So um, I want to highlight verse 11, because I made reference to this earlier. Then Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession land of Egypt in the best of land, in the land of Ramesses, as Pharaoh had commanded. So there's a lot here. This, this, we, again, we know where this is. It goes by Avaris. It's called Goshen, and later it's called Ramesses. It is called Ramesses in Exodus 1. Now, it's not called Ramesses in the days of Joseph or in the days of Moses, I don't believe. What you have are later editors uh, saying, if you want to know where it is, it's what we now call Ramesses. For example, you ever been to the city of Lebanon, not far from here? Have you been there? Anyone been to Lebanon? Yeah, it's Georgetown, right over here. It was originally called Lebanon. I know that because it was my ancestor who named it. It was later changed to Georgetown. George, you know, George Washington. But it's originally called Lebanon. No one calls it that. So if I were telling you a story about, you know, how he bought, and he went, you know, my ancestor bought the uh, hundreds of acres around the Royal Spring and he named it Lebanon. And you're going to think, I have no idea what in the world he's talking about. But if I said, he bought the Royal Spring there in Georgetown. Well, it wasn't Georgetown. But we know where that is now. And you can do this in virtually every town you go to. There was the original name, and then maybe a different name came to it. And I think that's what it is that you have here. There's a lot of ink spilled over the use of Ramesses. So if you're ever interested in the historical reliability of the Exodus story, you're going to be amazed how much time people spend on that. That's why a lot of people think the Pharaoh of the Exodus is Ramesses the Great. Anyone remember Prince of Egypt? It's one of the greatest movies of all time, the, the, the animated movie. If you haven't watched Prince of Egypt, first of all, shame on you. And you could probably like YouTube it and watch it now. Yeah? Um, and it's probably on some streaming service. DreamWorks, excellent. They, did re- they also did the Joseph story, but Prince of Egypt is wonderful. Um, the songs are good on it too. Anyways, the pharaoh of Prince of Egypt is Ramesses. And this is where they get that, that reference to Ramesses. I think that's a later addition to help the reader. Anyway, so uh, in verses 13 to 31, uh, the famine gets worse. And uh, I think this is a scene that's difficult for American, modern Americans to read, particularly conservative Americans, because we believe in capitalism. We don't like uh, government control, stuff like that. And so Joseph does everything that we don't like. Uh, if we do the documentary next week, let me know if you're interested in that. I th- they provide a, a possible insight into some of what goes here. Okay, so despite settling in rich pasture land, the famine continues to worsen, starting in verse 13. And what we need to see is, once again, God is providing for his people. Remember the story of Jacob, or Isaac, rather. Isaac wants to go to Egypt, and God says, don't do that. I'll take care of you through the famine here in the promised land. You remember Isaac starts digging wells and the Canaanites fill up the wells out of jealousy. So he goes and dig more wells. 
It's a boring story. He just, he's just digging wells. And people in the middle of the night are filling the wells. He goes and digs another well. That's the story. Well, just as God provided for Isaac in the famine, he's doing the same thing here while, while they are uh, sojourning in, in Egypt. The word, uh, verse 13, there's a good word there. Now, there was no food in all the land, for the famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by the reason of famine. That word is only used here in the Bible, in, in, in that, that sort of use. It's one in Proverbs, but a little different. It means to be weary or tiresome. It can even mean to faint. The land is fainting. It's tired. It's wore out. Uh, you can plant and nothing's going to, to come of it. Now, what we get is the system Joseph has created is not welfare. So it isn't you're hungry, come get you some food. You buy the food. He creates a grocery store. So during the seven years of famine or uh, uh, plenty, he basically put a tax on the harvest. And that tax then goes into these big storage buildings. You remember we said it's not all in the capital city. It's spread throughout. So the local governors, if you will, control it. And so the tax then goes into, so you live in Kentucky. You're, you're going to go to Frankfurt, the capital. There is the storage building. And so the state then will take care of it. That's sort of the system he has. But you don't go up, knock on the door, fill out a few, a few uh, papers and say, my family's hungry. The famine's really bad. Give me food. That's not the system. It is, we need food. Here's the money that we have. We're going to purchase our food. So notice what you have there is all of the wealth of the land is going into the government system. Okay? So this is where we, we conservative Americans say, I don't like that at all. Okay? I don't like that at all. And, and so that's the system. And um, eventually, however, people run out of money. Because you don't have the economy that you would otherwise have. In an agrarian economy, you need agriculture. Famine ruins it. Imagine, if you will, the internet stops working. It would not take much for that to happen. It is a serious threat we have, security threat we have. It would not take much for that to happen. What would happen to our economy? What's, it's done. It's absolutely done. All because of the internet. Now, let's take out electricity. We go back, not a thousand years, we go back to uh, Stone Age. Because most people don't know where seeds come from to put them to make, have a garden, do we? Go talk to the average Gen Zer right now and ask them, where do you get seeds? Not, not the grocery store. I, I remember uh, one city folk said, why do we need all these farms? We've got grocery stores, right? That, there's, they're everywhere, okay? Um, my, my brother had a friend, um, you know, he works out of state, came in and saw a license plate that said farm on it. They go, where's Farm County, right? We must be out in the country. He's like, not a county called Farm. It's a license plate that he's a farmer and he gets certain privileges, weirdo, right? Go back to the city where you belong, concrete jungle. So, but you can see here that, that you've wiped out their economy, which means all, all that money has now gone into the, 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 the government system. Okay? So, but what do you do? when people are hungry and they no longer have the resources to get food. What Joseph does, going down to verse 16 and 17, is he says, bring your livestock. That's an option. It's a source of income. We still, not, to, not like we used to, but you, know, you go back to the Depression days, people 
we're buying stuff through means other than cash money. Yeah, um, we get this now. The word horse shows up in verse 17 for the first time in the Bible. And it's interesting that Egypt becomes known for its horses. Now, chariots have shown up, obviously, and that implies horse. But the word horse shows up first time in verse 17. And what is interesting is that list in verse 17, a similar list shows up in chapter 9 of Exodus. You, you can do your own compare, compare. It's not perfectly you know, laid out, but it's very similar. The hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague, right? This, you remember that the plague on the livestock, this is it. Uh, that are the, in the field, horses, donkeys, camels, herds, and flocks. It's almost the same exact list as here in Genesis 47. It's not, it's not the same order. It's not all the same, but it's very, very similar. So here, that the horses are being given to the system, the government, and then God will later bring judgment upon that, those, the livestock that are then brought into Joseph and the other leaders. And remember that Solomon, we just did the story of Solomon, he imports horses from Pharaoh. So now, now we've really come full circle. Um, now, what I think is important here, and we, we didn't look at this, um, I think I, I skipped it. I don't remember what verse it was. When, oh, go back up to verse six. The land of Egypt is Pharaoh to the Israelites. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. If you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. Now, it text doesn't say that they took advantage of this opportunity. Let's assume they did. Otherwise, why put it in the text? Notice what just happens. Here come sojourners, Asiatic sojourners that are outsiders. God puts them in pristine land so that they can survive the famine. So you have an oasis in the middle of the wilderness. And then they are given the job of the livestock, which is now being overrun because of the famine. People are bringing their livestock to Pharaoh just so that they can have food to eat. So you see Pharaoh is growing in power and influence. And so you have the centralization of that power in a single person, thanks to Joseph. And who is it that presumably is taking care of all the livestock? It's the Hebrews. Isn't that an amazing little detail? Right there in the text. So cool. So cool. Okay. Um, once again, God, God is just, just taking care of them. Well, with all, in verse 18, their money's gone. Their livestocks are gone. So what, now what do you do? Famine is still going, still trying to figure out what to do. So what Joseph develops is essentially a surf system. They sell themselves. And they ask for seeds to plant in the fields that are now owned by Pharaoh, by the serfs that are basically owned by Pharaoh. Um, so he owns all the land, the money, the livestock, and basically the citizens. And you can see there, verse 20 and 24, the details laid out. The only land not taken are that which is for the priests. And the system seems to be that the people work the land and keep the produce, but are taxed 20%, which is low by ancient standards. <laughs> it's low by American standards, frankly. Um, but, uh, I mean, you go back and think, we got barely taxed on tea and we started a war. You imagine if John Adams could see it and see the system now? You're, you're, you're paying what? For what? <laughs> Grab your torch and pitchfork, boys. I'm not advocating it. I'm just trying to make a joke. Um, now go down to verse 25. Again, this system is weird to us. That's because we've never gone through a famine. 
The closest I've ever gone through is in Breckenridge County, we had a very severe drought. The next year we had the flood. So we had two years where our economy was almost ruined because no tourism, it affected farming and stuff like that. We had very serious droughts. And that affected a lot of things. I had farmers in, in my church who they didn't know if they were going to be able to pay their bills. You know, they had loans for their tractors and their land and everything else. You know, nothing was growing. And, and that's a very scary for something like that. But we've never gone through anything like this. We never have. Um, I remember a few years ago, uh, if you went to Wendy's because of a hurricane in, in Florida, there was a shortage on tomatoes. You remember this? And so Wendy said, if you want tomatoes, get it, but there's a shortage. So if, if you can live without tomatoes, live without tomatoes. And we went without tomatoes. And man, I barely recovered. And, and I remember like, that's as bad as we get it, tomatoes. That's it. The price of pineapple might go up at Kroger every once in a while. That's it. So, so we can't sympathize. What would you do to eat? What would you do to get your kids to eat? And so you get, go down to verse 25, and you have, they said, you, Joseph, have saved our lives. May it please my Lord. We will be servants to Pharaoh. So Joseph made it a statue concerning the land of Egypt. And it stands to this day. Notice that that's a reference to the timing of the writer or editors. Okay, that helps explain the Ramsey reference. That Pharaoh should have the fifth, 20%. The land of priests alone did not become Pharaoh's. So you see that the people aren't bitter about this arrangement. They see it as a wise arrangement. And so, so here you see government taking a strong role in the system out of necessity, not out of necessarily desire. Um, so although we struggle with it, right? Just give them food, right? Just, just give them the food. But in the ancient world, this, this is actually pretty nice system. You know, and, that, and that Joseph was, was quite patient with them. Uh, so verse 27, 28 is the summary statement of, of the experience. And we'll pick up verse 29 next week, Lord really. Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen. They gained possessions in it, were fruitful, and multiplied greatly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years, so the days of Jacob, the years of his life, 147. Uh, several years shy of his father and grandfather. Um, what is most important about that summary is the, is the phrase, they were fruitful and multiplied. That takes us all the way back to Genesis 1 and 2. To be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. Here you have sojourners. They are being fruitful and multiplying. Now, they are fruitful amid famine. We, we, we did this years ago when we started this journey. Fruit, fruitfulness, is a reference to agriculture. It's a reference to family. The blessing, both are God's blessings. And in the ancient world, the two overlap. That's why your fertility gods were the gods of the land. So, so you would have harlots in the temple and you would go to them in hopes that your crops would grow. The two overlap in the ancient world. And in the, in the Genesis, you, you have something like that. To be fruitful is the blessing of the land. It's the blessing of the home. But here, to be fruitful and multiply is a blessing. This is good news. Despite the famine, God is giving them his blessing. He's created an oasis in the wilderness. Now, this will be the source of contention in the story of Exodus. Go all the way to chapter one of Exodus. Joseph died in all of his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. 
And then what does it say? Pharaoh tried to kill all the boys. He turned into China, tried to limit the population. It's a type of genocide he ends up doing through first murder and then, and then slavery. Um, okay, so a couple of points. What do we do with this? And then we can call it a day. I did not spend a lot of time on this application. It was the first three things I thought. Um, so first thing is uh, government is an institution of God that has a divine purpose. Right? I think people more conservative need to be reminded of this. From what I can tell, people more liberal left bent believe this too much, <laughs> okay? So um, uh, we do need to be reminded there is a role of, for government. It is, an in, it is instituted by God. Post-fall, yes, it is still an institution of God to do good things. If we had time, we can trace this. In the Old Testament, the city is a bad place. Cain killed Abel and he went out and built a city. Solomon and Gomorrah were cities. Babylon is a city. Nineveh is a city. Rome is a city. That's, that's the way the Old Testament sees it. Um, you come into the New Testament, the target of the gospel is the city because God is invading the evil one through the gospel. So you see Paul going from city to city, political capital, economic center, one after another, until he's finally in Rome in the book of Acts. But what you also get in Genesis is these few moments when, although the city is usually the place of wickedness, it's also a place of refuge. So we, we, we get the sad reality of cities. They're usually places of wickedness. If you don't believe me, pick any city in the United States right now. The, the denser the population, the crime seems to increase with it right now in, in the United States of America. Look at what's happening in Lexington right now. You know, it's, it's, it's booming and it's taking with it all the issues that are coming with cities that are growing. Um, but at the same time you get in the Bible is that when it is run well by the righteous, people can, be, can benefit from government. So my point is, is, is it is not okay to, to turn government into a god or to turn government into a monster. And that gives us the freedom to be grateful when justice triumphs and to prophetically call it out when unrighteousness seems to rule. That's the Christian position, okay? So hopefully I am not in too much trouble. Um, uh, secondly, um, those in power should not seek power but service. I love the phrase public service. I think that's a good phrase. The premise is, is, is that I've entered into this, in, into this role not for my own, um, my own power, influence, and whatever, but to serve, to serve the public. Um, if you study uh, American history, particularly with the early presidents, almost all the first presidents were nearly bankrupt because they became presidents. And so the, early, uh, the founding fathers were concerned that the presidency was, was so tempting because it was so powerful. Now, by our standards, he, they had no power. But because it was the chief executive of the United States, there's a lot of temptation that comes with that. Remember, they're revolting against the monarchy. They didn't want that. One of the ways is, is, to, is to make it so unattractive 
the wrong people don't want it. So if you're not getting paid and you're not working, you know, for you know, a job that pays, only certain people are going to apply for it. Now, there's a bad side of that. There are a lot of good people who can't afford to be the president of the United States, right? I mean, you got to have a pretty big bank account. Yeah. So a lot of those early guys, they're nearly bankrupt by the time they leave the White House. That's different now. Now, often the uh, position is used for prominence, and that is a, uh, a recipe for corruption. Imagine being Joseph. He has everybody's money, everybody's livestock. He has everybody, period. You talk about temptation. Remember when you were a kid and, and someone would say, would you do X for all the money in the world? Like, all the money in the world? All the money in the world? How much is that? Right? You remember those games you played as kids. Joseph had it. <laughs> he had it. All the livestock, all the money, all the labor. There's nothing else left. He has it. And he can decide who eats and who doesn't eat. That's power. But he uses it to be a blessing to others rather than a blessing to himself. So any position of influence, authority, or power we are given, we are to use those opportunities to be a blessing to others ahead of ourselves. Whether that's a political position, a religious position, or otherwise. Use it so that people are better off because God called you to that position of influence. Finally, here's, here's the main thing. God is always with his people, uh, which I did not put up there. Apparently, that's weird. I know I put it up there. God is always with his people even through difficult times. That's the third point. God is with his people even through difficult times. Uh, this famine is severe, something we've never experienced. Yet God proves faithful. He told Jacob he'd take care of him and he is taking care of them. Now, it's not the story Jacob wanted. Jacob wanted to possess the lands. He dies outside of the lands. But God sees the story of Moses. He sees Joshua. He sees David. He sees Jesus. Jacob has to trust that God sees that and God will take care of it. So do we. Um, there's a great Tim Keller uh, thing I, I saw on Instagram today. Someone shared it. And I think it was Instagram, maybe Twitter, probably Instagram. And it was... Tim Keller talking about, he had a professor in, at, at, in seminary who was talking about the book of Job. If you read Job, it's tough to get through because Job says a lot of mean things to God. Right? He does. He, he's like, what in Sam Hill's you doing? Right? Why would you let the, you know, the questions we always ask during suffering. His friends are, are not the best people in the world. Right? They're pretty ignorant. Uh, they, they, they themselves probably spend too much time online. And, and Tim Keller, he goes, Joseph says all these awful things to God, and at the end, God blesses him. That makes no sense. And I thought it was really good insight. He said, I'll tell you why. Because he said all those things in prayer. He had to work through his sufferings to God rather than try to work through his sufferings away from God. And he gets to the end, he realizes, the thing I'm angry at the most is the thing I need the most. And in that, he realized God had never left him. I think that was really insightful. It's important you grasp that before suffering comes. Because once suffering comes, it's too late. God is always with his people, 
even through difficult times. And if Joseph doesn't convince you of that, Jesus should. Because Jesus suffers the climax of human evil. And he cries, God, why have you forsaken me? And that's the only time we, 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 we can honestly say something like that is true. But there God raises him from the dead. So God is always with his people, even through difficult times. Danny, Danny did we miss anything?